Welcome to the Anchored by Faith podcast, a Reformed Baptist podcast with the goal to hold to Scripture to be conformed to the image of God. My name is Colton Wright, and I'm my co-host over here, Logan Batisti. And we come here on a not quite not quite our normal night. I don't know. We've kind of been routines been messed up a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, it's the holidays. It happens. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. We got Thanksgiving coming up next week. Yeah. And I mean, in between hunting, in between holidays, I mean, it's going to be an interesting next couple of months. Yeah, it's like two holidays back to back. Three, technically, because I mean, you got Thanksgiving, you got Christmas, and then New Year's right afterwards. Yeah, that's true. And luckily, at least Christmas and New Year's are going to be on a Saturday this year. Yeah, I don't know how I feel. I mean, it's good, but I still have to work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, usually you get paid days off, right? Mm-hmm. But if it would have landed on a Friday, I would get that day off, and then I would have a three-day weekend. Oh. It's pretty nice. Yeah, I don't know how it works at my new job yet. So, I mean, we'll see how that works. Like, this next week, I only get Thursday off, and that's it. Yeah, well, I'm the same. Yeah. So, I have to work Wednesday, Friday, and then Saturday, because it's my weekend for Saturday. Oh, man. I'm I'm glad. My work's seasonal Saturdays, so... We haven't had a Saturday in uh, like three weeks, four weeks. And it was supposed to be my Saturday and we canceled it because we only had whole eight hour a day. Mm-hmm. And well, not quite eight hours, it's like six hours. But we only had like two or three customers come in and only one bought something. Well, like my Saturday was supposed to be November 4th, I think. Mm-hmm. But that's the weekend when we went to hang out with Tara and Trevor and went on our double date with them. Oh. So... I haven't worked in like a Saturday in a few weeks now, <laughs> but I'm making up my Saturday this Saturday or tomorrow, I guess, technically. Aye. And then next Saturday, it was supposed to be my weekend anyways. But so you're like double whammy. You ain't getting out of it. Yep. Making the extra money though, because those mm-hmm. Saturdays are all overtime. Oh yeah. <laughs> Time and a half. Yeah. So. How's uh, how's life been, Logan? Life's going pretty good now. Scarlett's teething again, so she's been kind of grumpy, not grumpy at the same time, but she still eats everything in our house. <laughs> going to be a lot of... Holidays are pretty stressful for me because we have like four different or five different family gatherings mm-hmm. we usually have to choose from, and yeah, it was a pain, but just trying to figure out Thanksgiving. Christmas is even worse sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's my dad's side of the family. Mm-hmm. There's my mom's side, my stepdad's side. There's Kyra's family, and I feel like there's one more, but I, it's nine o'clock at night, and so I'm kind of blanking right <laughs> now. But there's at least four. Man, I thought I was gonna complain. I only got like two or three. Well, okay, so Kyra, it depends on what the Bartrons are doing sometimes because you have to add them into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it all just depends. Do they do it spaced out though or is it all kind of just like same like week? Like well, is it Thursday and then Friday, Saturday? Uh, yeah, I have no idea what's going on this year. So My family. I don't, I don't think the Bartrons will be in town because they're only here for Thanksgiving and they're going back up for Alaska. I don't know what Amy's doing yet. I know my dad's family's meeting on Christmas Eve. Um, and I think my mom 
is on Christmas. Yeah, and then I don't know what my stepdad's side of the family is doing for Christmas yet. But, yeah. So, it really goes with what the work schedule is usually. <laughs> I feel really bad, but I also feel like you know, I'm in a terrible spot sometimes. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it comes a point where you got to cycle on and off. You're like, look, I can't make it to it this year. Next year, though. It's just so hard to cycle, too. Uh, I know. We, my family usually does... Like the weekend after, so we usually do the weekend after, and then one of my uh, my grandma's was two weeks after. Mm-hmm. So that way, you know, you don't get the turkey overdose in like three days. You you like there's a space space uh-huh. that you actually you actually start to like turkey again, just kind of sorta, or you know, the smell of turkey doesn't make you just want to puke, right? Because <laughs> you've gorged yourself for three days. Oh man. I mean, Christmas is definitely one of my favorite holidays, though, for sure. Absolutely love it, especially cookie day. Cookie day is probably one of my favorite things, but I won't get to make it this year because mm. part of the cycling is my dad's side of the family. They go to Alabama for Thanksgiving, mm. and so when it's in Alabama, they have cookie day while they're in Alabama. So mm. obviously, I can't make it to Alabama with just one day off work. <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> <laughs> be there for like an hour all right maybe, see you guys gotta maybe. head back home golly that's a long drive that's like a what is that like i think it's eight hours is it eight hours I, I thought it was more than that but i think it's only eight still eight when we went to georgia last year we we drove through alabama just a, a little splice of it and uh yeah that was it was still really far away i was kind of really that was a long trip man yeah, and we did that a couple of years back for one of the replant conferences when it was at the headquarters in Georgia. I remember you talking about that. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm thankful that the North American Mission Board puts that on and keeps it at a relatively cheap price to do that. Because, I mean, it's like 15 bucks just for them to feed you and put you in a hotel for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's a really good, the North American Mission Board really does a great job. They have a lot of good resources, too. Have you ever been on their the website? And I've been around it. I know that they do like a Timothy and Barnabas kind of retreat conference thing. Like the last one was just here in Branson a couple months ago. Hmm. I got on there and when we were doing class one time, uh, that's where I got the Who's Your One curriculum and I got another one, too. And then the hopes i was optimistic at the time but they also sent me david platt's book radical is that, oh. what, is that what it mm-hmm. yeah yep and then alabama's nine hours from here basically uh man man that's a that's a drive mm-hmm. yeah not, definitely not one i want to do there and back in one day no no <laughs> no we've well, i did it when we went to virginia i it is a I think a 16 hour drive and we started from on our way home when I started in Virginia I drove I think 13 or 14 hours I made it all the way to St. Louis and then I was done I was like I was like babe you've got to drive I'm like I'm falling asleep and so she drove and I didn't even sleep it was snowing and I was nervous 
because we were in my truck. Oh, so like the Kentucky trip all over. Yeah, it was no, it wasn't as bad as the Kentucky trip. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is that was bad. But. Yeah. I mean, let's just get straight to the subject. I mean, they probably don't want to listen to us banter all night oh, long. Man. I mean, I know it's nine o'clock and we're pretty tired, so it might be easy to get rabbit trails, but let's really go into what the episode is. Irresistible grace is what we're continuing on because we're doing a series on the Reformation right now, mm-hmm. right? Or at least what Calvinism is. And we're going through the acronym of TULIP, which T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and then P, our next episode, is going to be on perseverance of the saints. Mm-hmm. And we walked through the T. Most people listening probably didn't have much contention with the T. We get to the U. There was probably a lot of heat. We got to the L. There was probably a lot more heat. And we can really say this is kind of the last controversial point, really controversial point. Right. Most people will hold the perseverance of the saints, but irresistible grace is definitely, I think one, I know I said last time limited atonement is one of the most misunderstood, but irresistible grace is very misunderstood today. Um, I think most people don't, understand exactly what we mean by irresistible grace and sometimes like rc sproul notes it's kind of misleading um i think we can just say that besides like the p all the other points points or acronyms that we use or the words that are from the acronym are really kind of misleading in the way that the doctrine is yeah i and i i think that's probably has a lot to do just with our english language and the way we've shifted but I like R.C. Sproul and the way he puts it is effectual grace because the irresistible kind of maybe goes along the lines of individuals thinking that God is just dragging people kicking and screaming, you know, to heaven against their will. And that's a lot of people think that it's vice versa as well and that God Mm -hmm. is sending them to hell with the same ultimacy, I guess. Against their will. We mentioned last time about fatalism. Mm Mm-hmm. And this doctrine kind of tends to be looked at through a fatalism, fatalistic lens where individuals think that God is pushing someone either one way or the other. However, if, as we said before, these points can't be separated or really, you know, taken away from one another, we've built up to this point. So if you've agreed with the T— You've agreed with the U and you agreed with the L. I want you to think hard about the I. Right. Because, I mean, this part really comes at the point of irresistible grace. So, obviously, everybody's going to come to this contention of the fact that, well, I fought the call to go to the altar all the time. So, obviously, God's grace is not irresistible. Mm -hmm. Is that what we mean by irresistible grace? Absolutely not. So... Why don't we state a definition of irresistible grace, and then we can kind of nitpick maybe a little bit. So how would you classify irresistible grace? Oh, that's tough. I knew you were going to ask me that one <laughs> instead of giving an answer yourself. <laughs> if you want, I can give an answer. Irresistible grace is God, obviously, as what most people call in Calvinism, we say that regeneration precedes faith, right? Mm-hmm. So God's spirit works in our hearts to give us the want, the desire to please God. Mm -hmm. Obviously, 
in our total depravity state, there are things that we can do that look like they're good, might be a good virtue, but that doesn't mean that they're given in a heart that is pleasing to God. Now, people will nitpick that, I'm sure, but we believe that the Spirit changes our hearts so that we can want to, that we can run to God instead, that we can become the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And then after that point in time, Spirit works on us so that we can then feel convicted of our sin and then come to a saving knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Or then the saving knowledge of God inside of us wants to push us there, mm-hmm. I guess, is the right way to put it. Sorry, I wasn't exactly prepared to be a, to define it, and I probably should have and done better at my homework. <laughs> Sorry about put you on the spot. I mean, carrying on with the, I guess, analogies of will to simplify it, bullet it down, I think of irresistible grace is God's action upon our will that then changes our will. I think of it in the, in the light of a slave, which is what a biblical picture of us. We are dead to sin. Um, we are slaves to sin. We want to sin. We love sin. We're so indebted in sin. It's what we rejoice in. And so how can a slave become free? Well, they can't. Someone has to purchase them from the master. Christ has purchased us from the master, which is death, sin, our wages, what we deserve, our sin, our bondage, ourselves. Christ has purchased us from that very thing. He has redeemed us. And our natural affection is when that grace, that burden's been lifted, is to what? It's The natural response would be to love that which has freed you. Um, I know it's not an exactly perfect analogy, but it's what comes to my mind when I think of it. Yeah, I kind of think of Paul Washer's illustration on this one sometimes, and he talks about how if you took a statue of stone, and I mean, we'll get into mm. this with Ezekiel later on, but is it going to move? No. Is it going to do anything? Absolutely not. No. But what happens if you touch that, if God would touch that stone and change it into a stone of flesh? Could it finally do something? Could it do move around? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the way that kind of really sums up grace, irresistible yeah. grace. Yeah. It's not the fact of this is going to happen in one instance. Mm-hmm. Because there's definitely times where we've either fought the calling to go to the altar, fought fought the calling to follow Christ, fought Mm -hmm. the calling to do ministry or something like that. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to deny that. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate reality is that once God starts a work in you, he's not going to leave you in that point. Mm -hmm. And that's what we'll go over in Perseverance of the Saints too. But irresistible grace follows along those lines just as well because God can't start something and not finish it. Mm. The sweet aroma of his grace becomes so intoxicating that we have no choice but to follow it. You want to follow it. Anyway, we hope to flush that out a little bit more. We go through a few texts. Why don't we jump into some texts here that kind of walk through our position? Should we tackle the first obvious one? Yeah, I think the one that we're going to tackle first is the one that most everybody knows that a Calvinist or Reformed theologian is going to point to. That's in John chapter 6. If you go to verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, 
and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I kind of went no, a little too far. It was all, it's all relevant. I think that fleshing that out, there's... I want to say this first before I state what I want to say. There is the explicit texts that state something very, very explicit in Scripture. And then there's the implicit, the ones that maybe are along the little gray lines. So the question here about grace, is grace irresistible? Well, what's the context of John chapter 6? John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000. So they have seen the signs and the miracles. And these people have followed him. And what are they wanting? They followed him because he's done these miracles. And Jesus gives them some hard teaching. And he tells them that he is the bread of life. And they're kind of, it says, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him, saying, I am the bread of life that came down into heaven. And so they're kind of mocking him. They're like, so were these individuals willing to follow Jesus? Well, in a sense, they were following him. Were they willing to follow him? You could say yes, they were pursuing him. But what does Jesus point at? Are they pursuing him for the right reasons? They were not pursuing him for the right reasons. And I mean, if you look in Matthew, if you look in Luke, you'll kind of see instances where God gives them some hard stuff to deal with. I mean, you look at Luke 14. Oh, 14. Okay. Uh, Thought I had the right chapter in my head, mm-hmm. but you're going to look 25 through 33 and you'll look at those cost of discipleship mm-hmm. and notice that God gives three things. It says all relationships to summarize it up should look like hate compared to how much you love me. The second one's be willing to take up your cross. Mm-hmm. And the third one is material possessions. Mm-hmm. But it's the in between those the second one and the third one that we really need to pay attention to and we don't he look tells it to count the cost Mm -hmm. to look at the decision as if you were building a house or a tower and to see if you could pay for it lest you be the one who has an unfinished tower and is ridiculed Mm -hmm. or to count the cost as if you were a military commander or king at the time and whether with your ten thousand troops could you take on a larger force of 20,000 coming? Mm-hmm. Or if not, then you could send an emissary while they are far away to plead with or beg or to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. How often do we not do that? I know that this is going to sound like a case for not irresistible grace because obviously it's making you think about it. <laughs> but grace and salvation is something that is not something that just happens at one point in time. No. In fact, Scripture also teaches, I want to say it's in Second Peter, but I could totally be off here, is that we are to work through our salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. Work through our salvation to think as if we're planning to build. 
salvation is something that is not just done instantly one night during a sermon. No. I think that's here where you have what you have. And when it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that Greek word draw is very, very, very important. What does drawing mean? Well, I mentioned, we were joking before, you know, R.C. Sproul gives this comical note that what drawing doesn't mean, it does not mean wooing. Um, the Greek there is used in the same sense of, you know, the one at the well, drawing the water. It's drawing water out of a well. And oh, is that the point? I thought his was talking about how the same word is used when Paul is getting dragged out of prison. That, that was another one. Okay. And yeah. then a pastor that he was debating at the time went to Euripides, I believe, and mm-hmm. was like, here the Greek word is used to draw out water. Yeah. Oh, maybe that was it. Yeah. Okay. So that's the way he went around it. And then he mentioned about the drawing of the water. You know, you might have <laughs> in that debate, the guy said, you know, you don't, you draw water, or choose to draw water in that sense. And kind of thought he would refute RC. And RC's, and RC's like, yeah, I wasn't prepared for yeah, that. I wasn't but... prepared for that. But you don't stand over the well and go, here, water, 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 water. You know, you don't woo water out of a well. You draw water, which is a forceful action. You know, the water's stagnant in the bottom of the well. You plunge the bucket down there and draw it up. Now, if you're the water that's being drawn, what did you do to be drawn? Absolutely. You you were just sitting there being water, but there was an exterior force that acted upon you that drew you from your state that you were at to a new state. Mm-hmm. that's us we are being drawn by the father and so this is a deliberate intentional action and here in verse 44 it's important because the whole verse when it says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him so again if you're gonna say the father draws everybody all right what is the result of the drawing? And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, I'm sure we all know, we've probably all heard, what's the difference between can and may? <laughs> can I use the bathroom? Can I, you sure can use the bathroom. May yeah, I yeah. use the bathroom? <laughs> can, you know, has the resolution of ability. Do you have the ability to do it? May Simply, may I have the privilege to do it? May I exercise my ability? Here, he says, no one can. Therefore, no one has the ability to come to the Father unless, or no one has the Father come to me, the Son, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless something is done. What is that something? That something is grace. This something going back to limited atonement, is not universal. So, And so if we continue on, just continue on mm-hmm. to give context. So the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So this is one of those instances where the Jews get caught in the physical aspects, kind of mm-hmm. like the woman at the well mm-hmm. in John chapter 4. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So, I think we just became cannibals. Oh, man. Or at least that's what Christians in the old days were accused of. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it literally becomes the blood and the blood and body, right? Oh, we're not Catholics. <laughs> this episode isn't going in trans-subs... Oh, why can't I think of how to pronounce the word? Transubstitiation. Uh, you threw me off when you said that. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I had it on the tip of my tongue, and then you. Um, and then I mispronounced it. Like <laughs> you that. mispronounced it, and I completely left me. <laughs> uh, oh, we'll figure out. It'll episode. come to me in a second. Transubstantiate. Transubstantiation. Did I say it right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> it, know right now. It's too late. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like people need Jesus to live eternal life. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what Jesus has said in John chapter three as well. Mm -hmm. For the son of man may be raised up as Moses was in the bronze servant. Mm -hmm. So what happens? The disciples question this as well. This is a hard saying who Mm -hmm. can listen to it. But Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of Manning ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. After this, many of disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I think you have. Jesus' own interpretation, not an interpretation, he's telling you exactly what he meant. Absolutely. He's telling you exactly what he meant. And I think it's important to note that this was offensive. Now, how would this be offensive if I took the position, maybe contrary to ours, let me step into their boat for a second. If I read this passage to say, no one can come to me unless you want to, how would that be somewhat abrasive? You know, that wouldn't be abrasive at all. That would be like, okay, well, we want to come to you. That's why we followed you. So the only way that term, the only way that makes sense to be abrasive, to have the result that proceeds, is if the ability of them coming as they're coming to Jesus, he says, you're coming to me, but your heart isn't there. You actually aren't mine. You are not being drawn. And then they leave. Why would that be offensive? Because they showed up, but they weren't actually being drawn. They showed up, but they weren't actually there for the purpose that they 
were supposed to be there for, which was for Christ. They wanted the substance, the bread. Right. I mean, extra food, 5,000 people. I mean, we're guys. We like our Baptist potlucks. It's like, you know, they were hoping for a holy vending machine type thing. It's so clearly stated here in 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Mm-hmm. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. It's kind of interesting. Who gives life? Spirit. So what comes first? Life or the spirit? Regeneration or faith? And he says, for this reason, it's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So obviously, these are the words that are spoken to him, but they don't believe him because the father hasn't drawn him. I guess maybe if you see this in a different light, you can explain it to me, but it doesn't make sense to me right now otherwise for you to say that God doesn't draw people. Yeah. Because this is God standing in front of him, speaking the words that God has told him to, mm-hmm. and yet people are not being drawn. You have explicitly in this passage, I, you know, I've said it, but I'll say it again, because what people are saying, and generally, I want you to think about what we're saying, that the irresistible grace, when God grants irresistible grace to somebody, he bestows grace, they in return respond. Now, you say people can choose by their own ability to follow Christ. If you can, by your own ability, apart from any divine interaction, follow Christ, what were these individuals doing? They were following Christ. They wanted to. Not for the right reasons. We could say that, but yes. But they wanted to. They were following him. They were willing, right? In a sense, the Father did not grant them the grace. They were not being drawn. They were not of the elect. These people were not of Christ's. These were not the ones whom he was drawing. So if he's not drawing them, you have these people that are coming to him. They are seeking him. They're seeking the substance, but there's no what? Regeneration. There is no internal change. And what is the result of this? Christ gives where does this internal change come from? What's the difference? What separates those Jews from from the, the disciples? 12. Yeah. The twelve. What what's the difference? He explains it. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And then what does he say later on? He says, I chose you, did I not? What does he say there? Did I not choose you yeah. the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Yeah. And so what's what's the result? The, the father, who's been given to the son? The 12. Who's staying with him? The, the 12. 12. And I know that people are going to point to the fact that the 12 are a special case. But if you look back at last week, when we went through the high priestly prayer, it's not just the 12 that Jesus talks about in that. He's also talking about his future mm-hmm. disciples who come from the 12 and what they speak. Mm-hmm. This is where um, you need to take your theological system and put it through the ringer. Because if you want to limit this passage to the 12, I want you to think about the consequences of limiting this passage to the 12. You cannot apply to Perseverance of the Saints. We'll apply to next week. If 
this verse is very closely tied to perseverance of the saints. And if you're going to say this is only for the 12 in the irresistible grace matter, you have to say it is only applied to the perseverance of the saints or eternal security in the apostles matter. Because what is the result? All that draws. If you're going to say the only the only ones that are being drawn here that he's talking about is the disciples. The only ones that will be saved are the disciples. You've eliminated an essential verse for eternal security. And I'm not making the claim that we have to have eternal security and therefore this verse must mean that. I'm showing you an inconsistency in, in your own view. Right. And, I mean, let's continue on. Because, mm-hmm. obviously, if you see in Acts 16, 14, that mm-hmm. it's not only disciples that God does this for. No. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatria, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, say, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So again, we have who? A God-fearer. Someone who was... A worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. So she was worshiping God. She was following God. She was willing. She was following him. But there was something that happened. Something that was missing. Something that was missing. She was pursuing, but something was missing. What was that missing thing? Salvation. Absolutely. Salvation. Regeneration. God's work within a believer. God worked. And what was the result of God's working? It opened her heart. He opened her heart, and she responded to the things spoken by Paul. Right. So, And it says she was baptized after she met Paul. After she met Paul. I think, so again, you just have this concept of people that are following, but what happens? There has to be, there's something missing. There's an element there that we you have to consider. Right. We'll say this time and time again, a verse that really scares us, should scare us, and at least give us a healthy fear is the fact that Jesus says there are people who are going to do things that we would consider righteous, good things. Mm. And God's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless ones. Mm-hmm. Think about that for an instance. It's not about in the fact of what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we can work our way up there. And I know that there are people who are going to say, that's not what the argument is here. But I want you to be wary of that. Mm-hmm. That Something needs to happen, and we're trying to say that it's irresistible grace that happens here. Yeah. But it's grace nonetheless, either way. I don't care if you put the irresistible in front of it or not. Mm -hmm. We're trying to come at you from our perspective and how we view it. But as long as you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins Mm -hmm. and that he's the only one who can save you, then fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But I want to point to you why we believe the way that we do. Mm Mm-hmm. I want you to find solace in this because this irresistible, the effectual calling is essentially Romans chapter 8, 28. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. I mean, our, our slogan here, being conformed to the image of God. You have what? You have that whole thing is to be conformed to the image of God. The drawing by God, that irresistible drawing results in our conforming to the Son. Absolutely. You know, this isn't a drawing that is counter to our will. This is not, like we said, we were totally dead in our sins and trespasses. 
Actually, let's do this. We talked about Ezekiel. Yeah, let's go ahead and go to Ezekiel I mean, 36, 24. I think that's a good point to kind of touch on that. A lot of us are probably familiar with Ezekiel. I'm going to start in 22 and then read on. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the land, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give your forefathers so that you will be my people, and I will be your God. Such a beautiful passage. It is a promise. This is a promise to Israel. Yes. This isn't one of those your David moments. No, it's not one of those your David It is a promise to Israel. However, remember, we have been grafted in. That's an important thing to remember. We've been grafted into the promise of Israel. And so thus being grafted in, this is applicable to every Christian, everyone that professes. And so what goes on here? Well, first off, who does all the action in this verses? I will. I will vindicate. I am the Lord. I prove myself. I will take you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And then the result is you will live in the land. You will do what I want. Is this a kicking and screaming moment? No, this is a merciful thing. He takes out the heart of stone and he gives a heart of flesh. You know, that is such a beautiful picture of what we are in our sin. You mentioned the, the statue, you know, and I think hearkening right. back on this. I mean, if you look on too, it says after that, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. I like the way that's put. It's clear as day how that works. Mm -hmm. I like how you have, what's the result of the heart of stone and giving the heart of flesh? It's the change. It's this internal change. You will acknowledge your iniquities. You will acknowledge these things and you will pursue me. Oh, man, it's, I mean, that's just a really honest way of how God works. Mm -hmm. And I understand that people are going to try to draw from other instances of where, because you can exegete from this passage. We're trying to exegete. We're not trying to exegete. We're not trying to read in. No. We're simply reading what scripture says. Mm -hmm. At least we're trying with our best or not. Mm -hmm. And there might be instances where we fail. There might be instances where you might not think this is true, but make sure that you prove us with scripture Yes. And from the context of scripture, I don't see any way of where we are taking that out of context. Please. Because that is yeah. literally what it says. If you, 
Let me say this. If you disagree with us, please state it in the line of scripture. Don't tell me this verse can't mean that because of Second Peter three nine. You know, run over here to this verse. That's that's not exegesis. You have to describe to me what this verse means in this context and why we are wrong in our interpretation, which we'll be open to. Right. We're always we're always reforming. We're always growing in our knowledge. So this is a way for us to grow, to be conformed yeah, to the image of God. We absolutely. say that time and time again. And iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. And so, at, you know, but you have this, this, this divine heart surgery and what individual performs open heart surgery upon themselves? No one. This is only an action that God can take. He takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. And what an act of mercy and grace that is, that every person that has came to Jesus Christ will find him a perfect Savior because God himself has given you a new heart. He's provided new desires within you to pursue and love him. I was trying to find, or did you have the verse from Jeremiah 31 or? Jeremiah 31, 27. Do you want me to go ahead and read it? Go for it. Okay. Behold. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have washed over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone die for his own iniquity, each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each other his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and their sins I'll remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. It's a beautiful, I was glancing at that, and it's a beautiful just confirmation and the, the promise of what is going on here you have the father we have god making this new covenant which is picked up in hebrews the author of hebrews picks up on this very tone this new covenant is unlike the old covenant this new covenant is an internal covenant that causes an actual change where individuals who are in this new covenant will pursue god they will love him they will love his ordinances and they will follow him that's the reaction and to the point that each one will no longer need to tell the other ones no God because they will know him. So, and then the establishment, this is beautiful language right here of the creation. 
you know, thus is the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order by night. He calls upon the created order as a witness that what he is doing will come to pass, that everything that he has done will come true. He is saying that you want to know my promises. You want to know that this covenant that I'm instituting, you want to make sure or you want to know that you're in it and that it's going to happen. Look at the world. Look at everything. Look at everything that declares that I am a faithful God and I will uphold everything by my word. And I said this and I will do it. And he uses the creation as an example for his unchanging love. Absolutely. All right. Let's do the James 1, 17 through 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. So you have, by whose will? God's will. By God's will. God is the one who has quickened us to life. So the question, though, if we're going to go, because we're going to go down this objection later on. Mm-hmm. But question. Can we not choose to do what we want with the gift? Can we choose what we want to do with the gift? So obviously God gives the gift, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But say my daughter is 16 mm-hmm. and I were to give her a car, right? Obviously, I don't have that kind of money right now <laughs> anyways. but didn't say what type of car. <laughs> yeah. Any Any car. Because you know how 16-year-olds, they just want to drive. And I give them a car. Do they still have to drive? Do they still have to drive? Yeah. They can choose to accept or refuse the gift, right? No, they could. Yeah. The only bad thing is, is that's not a biblical picture of us. Does that disprove irresistible grace? If they can choose to accept or refuse the gift? Uh, Well, if the analogy was correct... In the state of man, I could say, yeah, but it's not a good biblical picture of where we're at according to God. I mean, for one, we're dead. We're completely dead in sin and trespasses. So we're not actually seeking him. And for two, when we read Jeremiah 31 and we read Ezekiel 36, and what happens? There is a cause, there is a heart surgery that causes new affections. So when someone says, could they, could they reject the gift? Let's say, no, because God has given you a new desire. He has changed your desires from hating God, from doing nothing spiritually good, to not seeking him at all to giving you a heart of flesh and causing you to walk in his statutes, to changing the very nature that you have to pursue him. And he doesn't just leave you there, but he continues to draw you unto himself so that as a 16-year-old, the response, I mean, that analogy would kind of put us on neutral grounds in the sense that God was offering a gift that we could refuse. That there was no, that the problem with that analogy is it's an external expression and it's not showing the internal reality of what's going on in regeneration because that is an external action. But God is not acting just externally. 
God is not giving you the Bible and putting it in front of your face and saying, oh, isn't it pretty? Don't you want it? Don't you want that shiny new BMW? Oh, it's really nice. Don't you want this really nice, shiny, NASB goatskin Bible? Thanks for the free one, by the way. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, but it's not just an act of simple persuasion as we humans. No, this is not a, <laughs> this is not a wooing. <laughs> you're you're not sitting there over the well again, going here water 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 water. You you're drawing it. This is a physical. So I think that those analogies, any analogy like that, is not accounting for the spiritual reality of what's going on in regeneration. Because what we're saying with this is regeneration comes first. God makes you a new creation. Thus you pursue him as we talked about the lion or i mentioned the lion i think it was last episode I mentioned it two episodes I in a row it. now okay well i'm gonna go on <laughs> the three episodes in a row now there's a lion common theme we're just gonna keep going with it i'm gonna say it from now on logan's gonna beat his head against what <laughs> the lion you know the only way the lion goes from carrots or from meats to carrot is if you change the very nature of the lion right and I mean, that's the only way that, as it says in the future, we'll see that the lion and the lamb lay down together. Yeah. You, the desi- I mean, you could say there, the desires are changed. Or that the ad- oh, yeah. the kids can play by adder holes. Yeah. Or asp. I don't. I think it's asp. But I think it depends on Some venomous yeah. snake that is poisonous to children and will strike when yeah. you play with it, obviously. In the future to come, God's going to change everybody's natures mm-hmm. to where death and obviously killing are not a thing anymore. That includes creatures mm-hmm. and unfortunately hunters. <laughs> but I don't think people grasp how much salvation really changes us from the inside. Yeah. I think when the biblical picture of, I mean, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, uh, Romans, the new creation. You're a new creation. You are not what you were. You've passed from death into life. Those are two completely different ends of the spectrum. Right. And this doesn't mean that we're going to be absolutely perfect and absolutely sinless. No. I don't want you all, and I don't think you all will draw that conclusion, but make sure that once a person's changed, that doesn't mean that they can't go back to sin. Yeah. Well, go back and taste sin. It's not. We don't believe that a person can lose their salvation, but a person can go back and sin and chew on it for a second, but then Mm -hmm. spit it back out because it's not what they want anymore. It's not something they can love. It's not something that they can adore. Yeah. It's the beautiful, that Trinitarian salvation that we possess, that the father who sent the son to die for our sins, but he didn't leave us there. That drawing that is done is not left on our own shoulders, but is actually carried by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides within us. It's our down payment for our inheritance. It's our possession. And he works within us to be conformed. You know, he doesn't. So as we walk down the path of life and we fall off in the left or the right side and the thorns and the thistles, the Spirit's there to pick us up. Sometimes we step one or two back. Sometimes we go one or two forward, but the Spirit's there to guide us and direct us. Yeah, absolutely. All right. 
let's go ahead and do a big objection verse. Because obviously it seems like in the New Testament Mm -hmm. that people can choose not to follow God. Mm -hmm. All right. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, I knew you were going to do that one first. So, I mean, that's the one that a lot of people like to refer to because it definitely makes it seem like Mm -hmm. Israel did not come to God, that they had their own choice in not doing so. And that obviously if grace is what's offered, that Mm -hmm. Israel willingly refused it. So obviously irresistible grace must Mm -hmm. not be true. I want to. I'm going to give a shout out at this point to a certain someone who'll be listening to this podcast, most likely, who sent me a wonderful video that I listened to, an IFB preacher, about this very verse. And he went on for an hour, and it was about chickens, and it was a terrible, terrible message. <laughs> but uh, I did not get this video, so <laughs> now I'm curious. But I'm going to have to send it to you. So, okay. it, it had more to do... It was a this guy did an amazing amount of work on the different types of chickens, but he probably should have done a little bit more on exegesis. I'm still curious. He named like twenty something different varieties of chickens. Oh my goodness! I didn't even know there were that many. <laughs> I didn't know one either, but there is apparently. Good to know. But all right, okay. Back on topic. Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Go for it. Not thirty five. Okay. 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, and you were unwilling. And I think that I'll go ahead and read Second Chronicles as well, because okay. I mean, it kind of kind of falls in this position as well. Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So you have this big objection verse. But if we, well, let me first read it this way. This is the way that I've heard Leighton Flowers, and a few other people quote it. So the first time I quoted the verse, I read it correctly. Now I'm going to read it how Leighton Flowers and many others say it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather you together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Now, I encourage you to go back, and if you've ever listened to someone from the other side, and notice what I said, I left out a certain word. Children, how often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Now, what is this verse about? So, just as in Second Peter last week when we walked through, let's do the same thing. We are in chapter 23. So, Ooh, this is a good one. What is... 23 about we zoom out what is the first title that pops up oh seven woes to the scribes and pharisees so you have woes what is this passage about well i'm just going to skim through 23 yeah i'm just going to 23 but i'll encourage you if you go back prior to this this theme that is in 23 is actually in 
few chapters preceding this. So then Jesus, this is chapter 23, verse 1, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you and do, observe, do according to these deeds, for they are the things and do not do. But they do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So now he's setting up something. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. So, he's saying something against the Pharisees. Skip down to verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who to enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense, for long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel the sea. So, are you getting a picture here? Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swear by the temple, that is nothing. And woe who swears by the altar, that is nothing. You blind men, that is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices on the altar. Are you getting, are you getting the picture here? Who is Jesus talking to? Whoever swears by the temple, whoever swears by the temple, both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. So you, you, you're getting the, the, the picture here? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Doesn't sound very nice. <clears throat> you have Jesus in his wonderful way in verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And then this. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Hmm. Truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's verse 36. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were unwilling. Who was the unwilling party? The scribes and the Pharisees. That's the ones who this condemnation is about. This is about the Pharisees. This is not about this is not a universal statement. This is not a statement across the board. This is a condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders for shutting off the kingdom of heaven, as he said in verse... Where'd it go? Later on in verse 23. I'm not going to take the time to find it right now, but it's prior in verse 23. They shut off the kingdom of heaven. So you have the scribes and the Pharisees doing this action that then causes this judgment. So this is not a universal statement, and really you want to talk about a, a statement that's limited. This is really limited to them. This is limited to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you have to be careful when someone is talking, and especially the Gospels, when this is when he's giving a judgment passage, you, 
the context of the judgment is the most important part. Who is the judgment being brought against? Because you cannot always take a judgment passage and make it universal. I mean, a great example of this would be, well, I mean, Matthew 24. That'd be a great example of this. You have this judgment passage. You mean 23? Uh, no, in 24 here, Matthew 24. Oh. And you have the, the sign of Christ's return. Gotcha. And you have this, this coming judgment. Um, when you take that judgment that is being brought and you make it into everywhere universal, you, 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 there's a problem. You know, you run into a problem. So the judgment passages are for a specific audience. There is a judgment whom it is being applied to. Now the judgment whom this is being applied to or the one this is directed at is the Pharisees and the scribes. They were unwilling to do the one thing they were commanded to do, which was be obedient and to not shut off the kingdom and to obey God, and they didn't. So, judgment. So, just to play devil's advocate, though, Mm -hmm. how... How does it talk about the Pharisees specifically when it also says like the whole city? It says, it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, mm-hmm. the city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. If you look back, that's really a parallel from 35. So upon you may fall the, all the blood of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Who's the you? Pharisees. The Pharisees are the one in context here. So, you have the Pharisees, who are the ones that killed him. They've done all these things. They've crucified. They've scourged. You have this, so on and so forth. Now, who killed the prophets? Who condoned killing the prophets? Who is the whole passage directed towards? In context, it's been the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, Now, here's the tricky part. If you're going to take it as a corporate, it's talking to all of Jerusalem, and you're going to ignore the the entire chapter, and you're going to say this is the corporate. Who are the chicks? Who is Jerusalem supposed to be gathering? You see, it leaves this weird scenario. Who is Jerusalem supposed to be gathering? Who is who is in context here? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking about the leadership of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children. Who's the child, Who's in context here? Pharisees, scribes, your children, the ones under your setting, the ones that are under your table, under your control, the ones who you're supposed to be discipling and teaching. How often I have wanted to gather them together Away a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. You were not willing to do the one thing I wanted you to do. So this Jerusalem, while it's a city, it's used a lot of times in a in a corporate sense to designate a body. It doesn't necessarily mean Jerusalem as in the entire inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is in the context of the leadership of Jerusalem, hence the preceding verses. You have the parallels of the killing of the prophets. And who is that paralleled with? The Pharisees. Yeah. So it's basically a parallel statement. All right. Yeah, I just wanted to flesh nope. you out because I, I figured that being an objection that would come up because I know that people like Layton Flowers and, well, at least Layton Flowers for sure, 
really likes to hit on this earth and hammer on it mm-hmm. and say that this is something that defeats irresistible grace. Yes. And the, the bad thing is, is this is, for one, I have a hard time if you go to a judgment passage. This is what just it dumbfounds me. If you go to a judgment passage to prove something, you know, hermeneutics 101 is understanding what literature is being spoken. This is a judgment. I mean, you've heard the, uh, if anyone's studied any hermeneutics or sit under any teaching, uh, you may have heard narrative is not normative. Which meaning, if, for instance, if you're reading Second Chronicles, or <laughs> no one reads Second Chronicles, <laughs> just kidding. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, those are very prominent narrative books. And narrative simply means it is a point by point by point by point narration. Just because something happens in Scripture doesn't make it okay. When you have, is it Jeroboam? The no, Jeroboam is the good one. What's I don't know where you're going with this. When you have, I the, mean, okay, let's say for instance, all the Old Testament or a lot of the Old Testament fathers, yes, who would offer sacrifices on the high places or places that were not approved by God. Oh, I was thinking more of like the polygamy thing. Oh, that's a perfect one. Polygamy. (laughs) Just because polygamy is stated in the Old Testament. Like by... By Abraham. Well, Abraham, not to the extreme, but he still does it. Abraham, Isaac, David, Solomon. Solomon a lot. Holy crap, Solomon. Solomon a lot. (laughs) And so you have all those things. Those are narrations. And what happens from that? Well... You can you can make a good argument that every single time that happens, bad things happen. So just because they did that doesn't make it okay. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the Bible condones it. So I feel like someone coming to this verse here and saying, you see here, this proves that we can will against God. Well, first off, it's not talking in a salvific sense, number one. Number two, it's not talking about everybody universally. And number three, you'd be kind of in the same argument as those people. You're saying that the narration in this event is a normative thing. I think all those combined make it, I mean, absolutely incorrect. You have a judgment passage. Just because it's judgment passage means that it's not always universal. This is not a universal statement for every time, everywhere. It's a judgment passage that's restricted to who? Scribes and Pharisees. And again... This is not talking about someone being drawn by God. This is not talking about somebody coming to Christ. In fact, I have no problem with this because, again, who is the ones that were unwilling? It was the Pharisees and the scribes who were unwilling to do the job, and thus they faced condemnation. It doesn't say that Christ or that God didn't still gather his people it simply is a judgment against them for not gathering his people does that make sense i think so i was trying to wrap my head around it but i i'll probably get it once i listen to this as i'm re-editing yeah essentially just because it says i wanted to gather your children together away henry gathers his chicks but you were unwilling who's the you it's not the chicks it's the hen the one trying to gather them It's, well, not the hen in this passage. It's the ones, it's Christ would be the hen, the one trying to gather the chicks 
under his wing, but you were unwilling. Who's the one who was causing the division from the gathering? It's the scribes and the Pharisees from gathering the chicks. It's a judgment against them. It's not saying that he didn't still gather his people. So it doesn't really refute irresistible grace. Gotcha. I see what you mean. Now. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't really, ref- it down doesn't really refute irresistible grace. Right. All it really says is they weren't wanting to do it. Judgment on you. I mean, in reality, I mean, it's kind of what we stated earlier. I think it would fall right along the lines of, you know, the unconditional election. Just because Christ tells us to do, or why should we evangelize? Because Christ told us to do it. And if we don't do it, there could be a judgment upon us. They did not do what they were told to do. Doesn't mean that Christ still wasn't gathering his people. It just meant there was judgment upon them. We are called to go and disciple the nations. If we don't do that, it doesn't mean that God's not going to gather his people. It means simply that we have brought judgment upon ourselves. Right. So I think that pretty clearly defines that one. Pray laid a good argument that the reason this doesn't work is because or Matthew 23 doesn't work at least, is because it's not talking about universally Israel itself, but that no. it's a judgment against the Pharisees. Let's talk about, let's kind of go back to Second Chronicles 36, 15. I don't know if we kind of really answered that one. No, I didn't really go to Second Chronicles. Because it seems kind of weird that if God would send prophets to people who he knows aren't going to answer, I mean, what's the point of that? Doesn't that seem like an unjust God? It doesn't seem fair, right? So, go ahead and read that. You said 15 through... 15 and 16. Well, refresh it since we talked so much. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people until there was no remedy. So the argument here is that essentially God, why would he send his messengers if they couldn't respond? Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously it doesn't seem like, it seems like there's an opportunity to come to God here, right? Mm -hmm. That God is, has compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Mm -hmm. But it seems like they willfully mocked this, that they despised it. Yeah. And I think it's a part where we talked about in total depravity. It's not the fact, yes, it's an inability, but it's an inability because that their wills are so focused on wanting to do what pleases them, what causes them to basically put an idolatry, mm-hmm. wanting to please themselves, wanting to idolize themselves over themselves instead of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what rests this in. But I kind of want to see what your thoughts on this were and kind of put it before you and see if you had anything else. I mean, the first thing I see here is, again, this is what's the context? What's our what's our what's going on here? I mean, I, I guess I spilled the beans there a little bit earlier. Um, Second Chronicles is a narrative. This is a narrative form. Narrative does not constitute normative, meaning that just because something's stated does not mean it's universal for all time. Now, stating that, because the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people 
and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people, until there was no remedy. So, what does that have to do with salvation? Nothing. This absolutely has nothing to do with salvation. See, the whole irresistible grace is the fact that God, when he acts salvifically, draws someone to himself. First, it has nothing to do with salvation. That's not what it's even talking about. It's talking about the fact that their sins are being brought against them. So, it's one of those things where when the Bible is explicit on a topic and someone mentions like something that's on the gray lines over here, we always take the very clear text that is very explicit as the hard marker. This text over here, for one, it's a narrative. doesn't mean that it's any less true, but it means that we should constitute, it's a narrative, a story is being told here. What's the story being told? The story being told here is judgment going to be brought against what we have, or not against, but being brought by, therefore, verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with sword and house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young men or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. So this is about, well, judgment. (laughs) This is the first exile. This is the first exile. It's about judgment. So again, is it about salvation? No, it's not talking about salvation. It's not talking about God's drawing. It's not talking about them resisting God's salvific draw. It's talking about God bringing judgment upon them for disobeying him. So it kind of, I mean, you can say that, but they continually mocked their messengers and despised him, his words, and scoffed at him. Yes, they despised him and they mocked him. Um, That doesn't really mean anything. Does, does that mean that the entire nation corporately, for one, rejected him? Not necessarily. For two, um, this isn't talking about him calling his people unto himself. This is talking about him sending messengers to what? Bring his bear, to bring his word to them, to warn them, and what do they do? They reject it, they reject it, they reject it which is the common theme throughout all of Israel. What do they do? They reject his word, they reject his word, they reject his word, and judgment comes. So this isn't even in the same category as irresistible grace. So irresistible grace states that God, in his mercy, bestows grace upon individuals to bring them to himself. When that grace is given, they then come to him. What in this verse, or sets of verses, or this chapter, is talking about God bestowing grace upon somebody at all? None of it. None of this verse is. It's a narrative about what is happening to Israel, the fact that God has warned them of what is going to happen and they didn't listen. So, the correct way to interpret that would be to take that and, and say... And look at Jeremiah. And look at Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah in exile? That's a great point. Was Jeremiah in exile? Jeremiah wasn't. He watched the destruction of Jerusalem, right? He watched the destruction. Um, 
But was he a faithful follower? So if Jeremiah was sitting there, this is a great point. If Jeremiah was sitting there, would it have been appropriate for him to say all of Jerusalem has fallen? Hmm. As they were being carried away into exile, could he have said all everybody has left? Everybody has went astray. Could Jeremiah have said that? Would he have been correct in his statement? Because hmm. he, from a standpoint, could have said, all of Israel has failed you. But did all Israel fail him? No, because Jeremiah was still there. So just because God makes a statement such as this, you're gleaming over. It, when something's stated in a narrative fashion like this, it's not giving an explicit theological point. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's the same thing as God working in the fathers, sending messengers to the fathers, and so on and so forth. Do we know? So this is the Lord God of their fathers sent word to them again and again, his messengers. So he sent his messengers. Do you think that some of those people repented? Some of those people turned? Some of those people came to him? I mean, if I remember, there is a remnant who's saved, but... Absolutely. I'm kind of fuzzy on like my timelines of when the prophets come with each other. So, but what I'm saying is right. Essentially for this statement to be true to completely, if this somehow could be related to irresistible grace and it could be any refute, any quote unquote air quotes, refutation of irresistible grace, you would have to say that this verse constitutes all of Israel or all of Jerusalem forsaking God. Reality, those messengers very well, we know as God's word goes out, it does not come back to him void. Now that means that it also comes in salvation and judgment. Let's put it this way. Um, I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but I think it's a relevant one. The gospel is the good news, right? Right? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That word gospel, the Yuan Eglion, is the good news, the carrying of the good news. It was the same good news, um, the same Greek word that had been used for a sprinter to enter the Colosseum to present or herald a message of victory. So what would that messenger do? The messenger would bring victory, a message of victory that the troops had won. Now, when that message, the good news is spread, what else is there? There's bad news. Bad news is someone lost. So the good news goes out. There's always the bad news. There's always judgment. The good news over here is that the proclaiming of the gospel, God calls his people. The bad news is that those that reject the gospel face condemnation. So what do we have in this verse? That is how God uses the gospel throughout all of history. So here, God's word, he he sends his word over here and he calls his people. Those that come, come. Those over here that don't come face judgment. It goes nowhere against irresistible grace. Okay. Um, I guess the, a nuance that I could see that somebody might say is those messengers definitely said, or would probably have said, and we might have to study this more, mm-hmm. is that he definitely called Israel to repent and follow him. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a nuance that we might have to search into more. Yeah. Because I would definitely 
I don't know if I could agree a hundred percent with you and say that this isn't a salvific passage. Well, I don't. It's being a narrative. Right. It's not. I would say it's not a salvific passage because it's not. It's telling us a narrative fashion. It's not telling us right the whole thing. It's telling us simply the judgment upon Israel. Yeah, I guess the point I'm trying to make, and I might be off on this, but it's the message that the messengers carried with mm-hmm. them, and I think that's what might nuance it. Yeah, for your argument mm-hmm. is that if we don't pay attention to what the message that the messengers were carrying and what was being mocked, mm-hmm. because I know that some messengers definitely told the people, "Yeah, repent, and God will turn everything back." Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing that could be nuanced from the other side in this passage, and why they would ref- could say that this might point back towards. A salvific sense. Right. It my point to that would be it's the purpose of this text is not a salvific, it is for judgment, just the ending result. Because what's the end result is for the Chaldeans to come in and so on and so forth, the exile. How did that judgment come upon them? It came by the rejecting of God's word. Them rejecting it, pursuing it, going against it. So God, on this hand, is calling them to repentance, and we have to get into a distinction here between what can be known as the decretive will and the prescriptive will. Now, let me break those down for you. The decretive will, what God decrees to happen will happen. When God spoke the world into existence, he did not ask anybody, it happened. When God chose before the foundation of the world to elect a certain people, it was his decretive will. He didn't ask you. He did it. He didn't consult anybody else. When God formed the stars and put them where they were, he didn't ask anybody else. He did it. Prescriptive will. The things that God prescribes for individuals to do. Now, you might say, how do those two interact with one another? Decretive will is the accomplishment of God unaltered by individuals. Put it this way. Does God consult us when it comes to the rotation of the earth? No, it just does what it does because God upholds it by its powerful word. Prescriptive will, things that God has prescribed to do. Like the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments. God says, thou shall not kill, but yet death still happens, murder still happens. Now, God said, don't do it, but we still do it. Right, and like Adam and Eve in the first... Yes, don't eat from the tree. It's prescriptive. It's not decorative. And he, and, or not well, decretive. Decretive. Yeah, and they, the, they did it. Yeah. They did it. Now, not to get into a nuance here, not too much of a philosophical argument, but if God is sovereign and he is in complete control, think about this for a second. If God wills 100% for something to happen, Does it come to pass? I think you get yourself in a sticky situation if you say God wills for the salvation of all of Israel in this passage, but they don't come. Can God not accomplish all that he wills in the host of heavens above and the earth below? I mean, yeah, I mean, you get in a sticky situation of where we talked about last time from 2 Peter 3 9 mm -hmm. of what 
Wills really is. Yeah. And this is actually kind of weird. We there was actually a group post about about this, and we can actually we probably should do an episode on this too. What the wills of God are, because this is something that definitely needs to be talked about, because it gets in a sticky situation of if God has more than one will or not. Yeah, and we don't really need to go on that rabbit trail since this episode is already running pretty long, anyways. It is, but yep. I mean, it's important to know that there. Are One will doesn't, I mean... We have to make these distinctions in Scripture. Right. We have to, as everyone's a theologian, you're either a good one or a bad one. Or maybe not a good one. You're either doing theology or you're you're a bad theologian. But everyone's a theologian. It doesn't matter. And so we have to make category distinctions within Scripture. That's why I stress the point this is a narrative. It's a category distinction within it. For instance, I've heard a lot of people go to Revelation to make a point. You find yourself in a really sticky situation if you're going to make, you know, a passage from Revelation that we shouldn't have, you know, certain markings on our hands or our feet or our heads because, you know, that's a sign of a certain thing. You get into a really weird situation. Right. And I mean, there are certain things that you take from Psalms and proverbs and poetical things i mean you don't take those literally every time no and definitely revelation and daniel i mean those are two points of what we call Mm -hmm. apocalyptic literature at least in some parts of daniel at least the later half is apocalyptic and Mm -hmm. while the first half is narration and so um going along like i've i've given my analysis of second chronicles that it's a narrative and he's not stressing we don't deny human responsibility for number one and we're not saying or we're making this distinction in god's will right and i've asserted that distinction and i think that's a good category distinction now where does that come from how can we make those that comparison well when we come to isaiah forty six ten, declaring the end from the beginning and from what ancient times things have not have been done saying my purpose will be established and i will accomplish all my good pleasure so he says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I will accomplish all I want to. So when God says, I will accomplish what I want to accomplish, um, we have to make a distinction. See, this is a specific passage on God stating something decretively. So when God is very specific in what he says, for instance, in Isaiah 43.10, he says, there is no gods before me, neither shall there be after me. Okay, If he says there is no gods before him, we take that as an overarching theme that there is no gods before him. So anytime there's ever a mention of a god, we go, but we know Isaiah 43.10 says there is no gods before him. Therefore, systematic theology, we put it all together. So we come to Second Chronicles and we see the fact that God is using messengers, but those messengers aren't accomplishing what we perceive the intended result should be. What does that mean? Does that mean, for one, the message has failed? Does it mean that God is not, that God is trying and they're just thwarting all his, you know, plan? Here's another thing to think about. If they had repented, would the entire exile have happened? Would of all the prophecies that God had given up to the point of the exile have been wrong? So you see the decretive will of God, which is a fact that something will happen, this thing that he announces that will no one will alter. He decreed they were going to go into exile. 
Now, pretty sure it's even said back in when Moses and Joshua's time that if you fall away from me, this is what will happen to you. And exile was definitely one of the things that was listed. It was. So he will remove them from the land. Mm-hmm. So he states that up front. So I find it interesting someone would run to an ending of Second Chronicles of bringing of judgment against the nation, a, a nation of Israel, to prove the point of individuals resisting God's salvific grace. First of all, it's a gray area, kind of one of those outlining texts. For two, the decretive will, or I don't, if people don't want to hold to that, God declared that they were going to go into exile long before this. So how did he know they were going to go into exile? Did he look down the corridor of time and hold his fingers and hope that someday, distant in the future, they might possibly could have messed up and went to exile? Or did he know from the time that he told Joshua that this would happen if you forsake me, that it was going to happen? He knew from the very beginning. Hence, he laid the ground rules. Hence, all the way from from that time period to Second Chronicles, the end, the end of the Old Testament, really. That's the last book in the Old Testament, chronologically. And so all that, what's the end result? Exile. All those messengers, all those things, confounding, confounding, confounding the rejection and judgment. God knew all that was going to happen. And what was the result? Judgment on the nation. However, just because there was judgment upon the nation does not mean he was not drawing his people. I think that's a big overtone. If you're going to say when you lump everybody into one lump sum and you say the whole nation had forsaken him, I think you have to realize that you can say in one sense the whole nation had forsaken him. However, you could also say that God was still calling his people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I think, I guess one way maybe you could put it right now is if you think in typical terms, I mean, you could think of America, uh, and this might push somebody's, America is a Christian nation. Well, this is going to be the yeah. opposite. But in the end, there are people who would disagree with that because there are many Americans who obviously are not Christian mm-hmm. at the same time. So there's this generality, but it's not true for everything. So you can say on one hand, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a universal truth. Right. That's essentially, I would constitute Second Chronicles the same way because it's a narrative. I mean, this is not an explicit theological point. Put it this way. When you have Second Chronicles making a passing statement about God sending messengers and then rejecting them, you can read that and go, okay, what do I gather from that? I gather that they were facing judgment. That's the context when you work through the passage. They face judgment for rejecting God's message. Now, Does that mean everyone in Jerusalem universally faced judgment? No, it means those that rejected him faced judgment. You go to John chapter 6. What does he say? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. All the Father gives to me, the Father draws. No one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. How can you reconcile those two verses? Very easily. The ones that rejected him were not being drawn. Right. You can say on one hand, the nation rejected him, and at the same time, say God was still drawing his people. That God was saving himself a remnant. God was saving himself a remnant. So the verse does not, does not in any way prove 
I mean, in, in reality, you could say the same thing. What is going on in John chapter 6? Is it not the same thing that's going on in, in this verse in Second Chronicles? You have the nation. You could, not you could say the nation necessarily, but you could say the large crowd of people, the 5,000 that were following him. I mean, not 5,000, but... More than 5,000 so, it, depending on how many. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a large crowd that was following him. So that large crowd following him, they had seen the actions and they faced judgment. But what was the result? Of that crowd, were there still people following him? Yeah. There were still 12. So God still has his people even in the midst. Right. So sorry, that was a long explanation, but I just felt like it was really. Yeah. And I definitely kind of tried to get it drawn out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good. Clarify to, because we really need to clarify these things and go deep into them. Because if we don't, then we're kind of just skimming the surface and I mean, we're not really looking in scripture and cl- and trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee that there are people who aren't going to agree with our interpretation no. and that's okay. I mean, it happens. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely things that Colton can see that I, I can in scripture and there are different things like I can see that mm-hmm. bring light to something that Colton had never noticed before. Absolutely. And same thing happens for if we were listening to Leighton Flowers, A.K. Richardson, Dr. Cooper, people who don't hold to our position. And I mean, same thing happens for John Piper, mm-hmm. R.C. Sproul, and John MacArthur. I mean, people have different interpretations that help to shape and mold other people's views. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I know we've went for quite a while here, and this has been a really long explanation of a lot of these different texts, but I would like to leave, just to summarize like one thing that, again, when we come to these passages, I mean, I hope that you can perceive that we're trying to be a humble heart here. I hope we don't seem haughty or anything. Trying to do our best to work through these texts to show you our mindset, the way we're working through them, and we're hoping these are edifying, or at least pushing you, because if you disagree with us, I hope these push you deeper into scriptures so that you can see why you think we're wrong and you can hold on to what you believe. I hope this doesn't, don't think ill of us for this, I guess. I hope. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least yeah. realize that we're still trying to be brothers in Christ to you guys. Absolutely. This is not, we don't mean to, to cut off. Yeah, we're not trying to say that if you don't believe us, you're not a Christian. No, absolutely not. And, and I know that people will make the point of like, well, if people become Christians apart from Reformed theology, well, then it must not hold true if you can't understand that. It's like, I don't understand that objection. I heard it once yeah. today, and I was like, that doesn't make sense, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But because we all grow and we all don't understand mm-hmm. the depths of mystery at the same time, something I understood today I didn't know two years ago. Mm-hmm. And it takes time to work and grow through it. I mean, we all start off on small spiritual food, spiritual milk, and then move on to larger food. Mm-hmm. At least theoretically, that's the way it's supposed to go. Yeah. Hopefully. Right. Should be growing. But sorry for the extra long episode today, guys. Um, thanks for listening and hanging in there with us. We hope it edifies you. We hope it grows you. And we hope that helps to conform you to the image of God. My name is Logan Batisti. And my name is Colton Wright. Thanks for listening, guys. And God bless. God bless.